1: Welcome to a brand new edition of Freedom Books, Flowers in the Moon, the podcast brought to you each week by the Times Literary Supplement. My name is Stig Abel and I am the editor of the TLS. Thea Lenaduzi's is here too. Hello, Thea. Hello. Uh, Someone on Twitter, I don't know if you saw this, described this podcast. Someone said, oh, I need some nice podcasts to listen to. Uh, and a person on Twitter said, this one finds the line between silly and serious. <laughs> and it did occur to me, were we, were we going for that line? It's- Seems to
2: <laughs> seems to sum up something about us. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Um,
1: and I've also been thinking about fish and cheese. Right. Smoked salmon and cream cheese bagel.
2: Oh you see, but that that's one of the very few exceptions to my to fish my cheese rule. rule Yeah. Because and I think it's Why? because it's cream cheese is so un-che- is so delicate. Yeah. Right? And and the another exception would be maybe a cookie Saint Jacques because there, the cheese is. It's more about seasoning. Yeah, like a gratin, yeah. and it's more like it's more of a seasoning than a kind of a, a cheesy. I thought, this, I
1: thought the smoked salmon was a, as an exception because it's not cooked, and maybe your objection is to the cooked. The
2: no, cooked. I don't think that it is that. If it were cooked, it would be worse it would be wrong whereas i love smoked salmon and cream cheese
1: okay if people want to suggest the (laughs) dishes that combine cheese and fish
2: oh well fish pie is another one yeah i did say that to lucy when you weren't here Mm. and i think that's again because the the fish i mean the cheese isn't the it's only there to kind of add depth and cream to the, the potato so it's different from her
1: suggest your own fishy <laughs> cheesy dishes and we'll see if Thea can approve them or not <laughs> at Stigables my twitter account if special to d-
2: stamp design yeah exactly
1: Thea approved and <laughs> make sure you're subscribed to the TLS when you can of course google TLS subscriptions this week we have an interview with one of the great modern authors Ian McEwan whose new novel Machines Like Me was extracted in last week's paper Fiction editor Toby Lishtig, a McEwen reader of Good Standing, interviewed him earlier. We'll play a bit in this show and you can listen to the full interview as a separate podcast too. This week's paper has as its theme one author, William Shakespeare. Did you know, Thea, that the only way he didn't spell Shakespeare was the way we do it now? There's eight different versions of the word Shakespeare. He never spelt it. Eight
2: different versions? Yeah,
1: because they didn't care about spelling them, which is I'm still kind of baffled by. (laughs) When he, and, and if you read some of the manuscripts he his plays, he would spell a word four different ways in like three lines. It's like, why are you not even trying? <laughs> but he, uh, on his marriage bond, his name is Shakespeare. <laughs> I'll leave that with you, just merely as a, an observation. Uh, we're going to be talking a lot about Shakespeare in this programme. The Doctor, Michael Keynes, our literature editor, will be on the line to talk us through some other things to know about him. Just don't use the phrase, the bard. There's only one author to whom the TLS devotes an issue every year, and that is William Shakespeare. Why? Well, the details of his life and work are both inexhaustibly rich and elusively incomplete. There's so much we don't know. His faith, his sexuality, his relationship with his wife, how many plays he actually wrote, and how much he collaborated on them. We don't even know what he looked like. Two of the three images of him were made after he died, and the other, the Chandos portrait, might not be of him at all. Mark Twain once described the memorial of Shakespeare in Stratford as having the deep, deep, subtle expression of a bladder. And it is to a church in Stratford we go for the first piece in the paper. We have Greg Doran on the significance of a stained glass window there. Geoffrey Marsh writes about Shakespeare's neighbours in Bishopsgate. Plus there's articles on how Shakespeare's been celebrated, how he handled the issue of divinity and the music of his late plays. Thankfully, we now have Michael Keynes to explain it all to us. Michael, hello. Hello. Firstly, why don't why can't we call Shakespeare the Bard? I've said at the beginning we can't. I hate it. You hate it.
3: <laughs> I'm I'm very glad to hear that you hate it. I think in general maybe they're never a good idea. These smarmy titles that the, and writers somehow end up landed with you know the father of English poetry or yeah. the master. They're awful in general, but I think the, the Bard is particularly obnoxious. And I, to me, it just sticks in my mind as the awful thing. It's sort of ham actor phrase. Yeah. For the great writer. But also it's got historic associations. Um, I mean, Bernard Shaw could talk about bardolatry, the worship of the bard, because by then, by the late 19th century, it's absolutely firmly established that there's only one bard, the Bard of Avon. If you go back a century before that, Garrett can called him the bard. There's a there's a song from 1769 where he talks about the bard of all Bards was a Warwickshire bard. Which is pretty bad in itself, but it's a kind of later imposition, and it's when these writers, these the, we've got a very you know self-conscious um, national culture forming, and they need these these great hero figures to look back to and embrace and say, look, they are always there, and Chaucer is one, but Shakespeare is the main one. So the Bard is loaded with this meaning, and it suggests that. All his great work just comes from nature. He strummed his lyre and out came Hamlet. And so it's a fairly ludicrous idea. It suggests nothing about the, the sort of, you know, the hard work of writing, all that kind of business. But also it's sort of loaded with this this insidious combination, nature and nationalism combined. So I think that, that's a good reason maybe to, to think before using it.
1: I also think it's an example of... Um... Um, elegant variation which is the curse of journalism that once you've said Shakespeare in the first sentence you've then got to say the Swan of Avon or the Bard because you don't want to say Shakespeare again and that sort of writing's awful isn't it and, I, and, I, and that's why I associate I kind of think people just don't want to say Shakespeare twice
2: Purely on a sound level, it's quite—it's—it's it's not very appealing. The but it just sounds like bard.
1: But I always—I think of lovies. I love you. know when people sort of say, "Oh, the bard, the bard." The bard. <laughs> um, I've used the headline self-consciously because we have a piece um, by Elizabeth Scott Bauman, which we'll talk about about um, how Shakespeare was celebrated by Garrick in the in the Jubilee of 1769, which mentions him being called the bard. So I've called it "bard times" as a pun. <laughs> Yeah, is that acceptable? Because I feel that's a its a—it's—it's it's relevant to the article, which refers to Bardolatry.
3: Yeah, yeah. Well, that sounds great to me, and I think it's part of the story. <laughs> Sending it up seems great to me. It's just that, as a name in itself, as as, as you were saying, people. Booming about the bard and the wonders of the bard. It, it's rather like actually anti criticism, isn't it? That's kind of putting him on a pedestal. In itself, it is a kind of form of idolatry. So I think sending it up is, is rather good. Fine. Um, but well, I know the problem you're describing. When you've written about Jane Austen X Times and you need another phrase, yeah what's she going to become?
1: Uh, right. We're going to talk about Shakespeare. Um, his life is tantalising, which I think is the point of all of this, isn't it? We fret the minutiae an awful lot with Shakespeare, because there's a certain amount we know. We know quite a lot, particularly compared to other Renaissance playwrights, people who are his contemporaries. So we know a lot, but there's so much yeah. we don't know. So then we get excited. So Geoffrey Marsh has written for us about Shakespeare emerging on the tax records of Bishopsgate, uh, St. Helens Parish in Bishopsgate, which is in London, and... Um, Why is that? Why does that matter? What does that take? Where does that take us, Michael?
3: Well, I mean, there's this famous idea that, you know, you could write the facts that we actually really have about Shakespeare on the back of a postcard or something. And one of them has always been this single mention of his name in in a tax record, you know, a lay subsidy from uh, 1797, 98. Uh, that shows he was living in this parish in the, the heart of the city of London. It's very near modern Liverpool Street, and it, for us it's quite a small parish. You could walk around it in 10 minutes. It's quite a big parish by the standard of its of its neighbours, but you know, very few people have, have really dug around trying to find out what it might mean that Shakespeare was living there. It's been assumed that he was just passing through, and of course we don't have the records to show that um, he, he was somewhere else in sort of 1795. But what I think what's really valuable about what Geoffrey Marsh has, has done, I mean, I think he's done painstaking work to find this. It really is extraordinary and very difficult, I think, to work this out, as he's bothered to put the lay subsidy record, this one tax record, against everything else he can find out about people in the parish. And that, in turn, tells us something about where Shakespeare was likely to be living, uh, maybe how long he was living there and maybe the people he was living among. So you can see from that one fact, you do very quickly get into speculation, and it wouldn't, I think, do to to push it too far. But you can actually find out a huge amount about the world immediately around him. So, for example, we might assume that he was living in this particular parish, because it's quite close to to the theatre, where his Shakespeare's company, the Lord Chamberlain's men, operated. But actually, it's quite close to all the other useful places in his life. Um, it's quite close to the. I mean, it's, not, it's not that far from uh, the river, so you can get to uh, the playhouse in, in Southwark. It's not that far from St. Paul's, so you can get to the booksellers, which is obviously crucial for him. And in the heart of the parish is obviously the church. Geoffrey Marsh thinks that Shakespeare lived pretty much with a view of, um, of the churchyard. He sees people coming and going all the time. So, knowing something about his neighbours, which obviously we can definitely find out who was living in this parish in the 1590s. Uh, is extremely tantalising, I think, intriguing material. It tells us something about the world Shakespeare lived in, but also about the world that the plays sprung from.
2: Well, and so crucially, he, it seems he was living near these two doctors, one of one of whom had a fantastic library.
3: Exactly, yeah. It seems that in particular, well, there's, there's a little group of doctors who seem to have lots of things in common. You know, they travelled um, to the continent and studied there. Uh, they are very interested in the um, thinking of Paracelsus, which is, and, they, and also they have society connections. And yeah, one of them is living just across the churchyard from Shakespeare, which is, I think, Dr. Turner is his name, and had some pretty interesting books in his library. So again, it's a bit of a leap of the imagination and it's speculative, but the idea is if Shakespeare by any chance knew this man, he was in touch with you know, a fellow intellectual and somebody who was really cutting edge. Another one, a younger man who's closer to Shakespeare's age called Edward uh, Jordan, becomes famous in later times as an expert on uh, the sort of medicinal properties of of spa water and that kind of thing. He writes a book, uh, Jordan, in the 17th century about that. But if Shakespeare knew him, he's very close to um, Shakespeare's age. and They're all all very interested in the properties of drugs, which of course come up in Shakespeare's plays in, in various ways, you know, poppy and Roots and man, uh, Mandrake in, in Henry IV, part two. So there's all kinds of little details that suggest that there's a certain amount of medical knowledge in Shakespeare's plays, and it, it can't have just have come from, from nowhere. Uh, maybe his neighbours are the obvious answer and we shouldn't uh, discount them.
1: Well, unless the answer is that he was actually Francis Bacon who knew more <laughs> about that sort of stuff than someone yeah. who, who went know, to, to, it's, to... It's
3: entirely possible. I'm I'm, I'm not going to discount that very creditable theory.
1: Let's not go down that <laughs> route, otherwise we'll both get angry again.
3: Um, the other guy <laughs> who actually lived
1: near, it's interesting, is a figure, Sir John... Um, what's his name? John Sir... Rich Spencer. John Rich Spencer. Of yeah. Crosby Hall. Of Crosby Hall, who hated plays with a passion... You can imagine Shakespeare sort of resentfully staring at him, glowering at him in the church as he, as he sits pompously thinking his anti-play thoughts.
3: Exactly. I think Sir John Spencer was probably a pretty unpopular person in London at the time for all, all kinds of reasons. Seems to have been uncharitable, you know, didn't help the poor, self aggrandizing, moved into this big house, uh, well, this, this manor really called Crosby Hall, very close to the church, and uh, which also, by brilliant, uh, who knows, coincidence or not, but it's the Crosby Hall that crops up in, in Richard III very early on in the play, uh, which uh, Richard Duke of Gloucester, in you know history, did did live in for a time. So uh, it's all kinds of reasons to be interested. But Spenser certainly, a, you know, an anti-theatrical campaigner, um, wrote to the Privy Council trying to get the playhouses shut down. Uh, again, this is all happening, you know, in. Really, in one parish and around around its edges, so we're talking about people who, even if they didn't know one another directly, which you know is is arguable about the likelihood of that, whose lives are affecting one another. you know these aren't decisions being taken miles away. It's not like today you know london when when we say you know when a man is 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 tired of London he's tired of life. Samuel Johnson in the eighteenth century is talking about a place that's tiny compared to London now. If you go back even further, shakespeare's time. You're looking at a place that's even smaller than that and where the parish really matters as a kind of organisational unit for society. It's strange to think that Shakespeare is living right next to this man who is an enemy of the theatre, who's an enemy of everything he stands for. Uh,
1: you, we mentioned the church and and that is a kind of link to a piece we've also got about religion. It's a, it's a striking thing about Shakespeare that we know his family were Catholic back in in Warwickshire you know there's no window into a man's soul as uh, someone once said and we don't know precisely where he stood in in religious terms but that's an interesting fact in itself isn't it we can read all the plays religion is not that explicit in his plays we've got a piece by Alison Shell about divinity and Shakespeare it's presumably not much in his plays because it's too risky it's a very changeable time it's very um people can lose their lives for the wrong sort of beliefs do you think that he deliberately suppressed notions of religion in his plays?
3: That's an interesting sort of historical phenomenon, I think, because to my mind, the, the religion, the religious element in his plays isn't obvious to us because it's not something that maybe, you know, in our terrible, lapsed, secular way, we, we carry around with us. But I think to Shakespeare and his contemporaries, it's, it's, it's the air they breathe. I mean, it's absolutely all around them. And not only is it shaping, it doesn't take an explicit reference To the church say or to Jesus or whatever it is because you are imbibing the Bible all the time and you're getting also the habit of thinking in a religious way so the idea for example of having a story in the Bible that is open to interpretation is an idea that can be taken into the theatre as well and to my mind you know, when the idea that, for example, Hamlet, you know, hesitates that he doesn't take his revenge straight away—that's a that's a familiar concept to us, isn't it? But um, I think to Shakespeare's audience, that crucial moment when he he's got a chance to kill Claudius, and obviously he doesn't, it, because Claudius is at prayer—that says it all to me. You know, that um, this this is something which Hamlet has an absolute belief in, and you can expect the audience, even if they don't believe in it themselves have a sense of the reality of that problem as well. So the, the drama to them is into, is absolutely, you know, it's surrounded by uh, the sort of debates of the age, and, you know, it's, it's formed by the, the habits that you get from going to church. And this is what Alison Shell is writing about. So another thing to, I'll just briefly mention, I love that she writes about conversion um, in Shakespeare's plays. There aren't that many converts. Obviously, Shylock is forced to convert to Christianity at the end of Merchant of Venice. But at the beginning of Othello, you have a character... Who is is different not just uh, not just because of his his, his race, um, but because of his age, and because he is a convert. Unlike everyone else around him, he is not born a Christian, and that's something else. It's a crucial thing that maybe we don't think about so much in relation to Othello nowadays, because obviously there's something, you know, that we can see in the play that's 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 more pressing for us. But you can imagine maybe for Shakespeare and his contemporaries, that's as crucial as anything else.
1: But you don't. What you don't get is you don't get him. So that's almost a way of him projecting some of the ideas of uh, conversion and squabbling about that without dealing with them explicitly. If you go back to Hamlet, you know, it's weird that the ghost comes from purgatory, which is a very Catholic mm. idea. Hamlet's a student in Wittenberg, which is a massive hotbed of Protestantism. The two sit next to each other. There's no moment where Shakespeare, presumably for reasons of caution, really wrestles with that, the sort of the theo- theological disputes that those two things might 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 cause.
3: Yeah, it's very strange because I think, It's strange in that um, he's obviously not, to us, a polemicist. We sort of think of Shakespeare as being sort of, I don't know, slightly set back from these debates. This idea that he's not involved, as I think we been touching on this idea. But we can't really tell how this would play for his his audience. I mean, there are responses, there are contemporary responses to Shakespeare. Some of them are in, in, in writing, as I think also comes up in this week's Shakespeare issue, is that you can see people annotating Shakespeare and responding to things. But we, we don't really have an idea about how that sort of thing um, would play. I mean, this is an amazing idea, isn't it? As you say, that Hamlet is kind of split between between worlds. This is sort of Stephen Greenblatt territory when it comes to thinking about Hamlet. Hamlet in Purgatory, <laughs> this book is called about this. You know, and it's, it's this idea that, you know, you are looking at both the old worlds, the old religion and the new, sort of duking it out. And you could say that maybe maybe everyone watching this play at the time is, is aware of that. They're processing at the time. Shakespeare's helping them to do that.
2: Um, can we talk just briefly uh, about the Jubilee of 1769? Because obviously it played a very important uh, role in how we do read Shakespeare now, uh, or how we read him then, and how the various permutations of his legacy. But also, it just sounds like Fire Island. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> That's a brilliant way of looking at that. It yeah. I think I, think I, I probably have three books on the jubilee alone because it's such an extraordinary strange event people keep writing uh you know little histories of how what a disaster it was and now there's a new one out um which uh elizabeth scott bauman has reviewed in this week's issue and um it still sounds like a disaster i don't think anyone's ever compared it to, hasn't compared it to that yet but th- that seems absolutely right only the thing is is the Stratford for jubilee in 1769 is, is garrick's show and it's him both celebrating somebody he probably sincerely did admire, but also his own reputation is very closely tied to Shakespeare. He's got everything to gain himself. Uh, From celebrating Shakespeare in this way, and when it is a disaster for various reasons, because uh, there is terrible weather, and there's a pavilion that collapses, and there's meant to be a fireworks display that turns out to be a damp squid. Uh, I love the fact that
1: I love the fact that there was a parade of 170 characters from Shakespeare's plays, which was rained off.
2: Exactly, and (laughs) it's
3: it's a fine effort, that isn't it? But then, Garrick, you know, is absolutely he, he bounces back. He turns that parade. Into a show that he can stage at Drury Lane in London, his his theatre, and it's a huge success, and it runs for night after night. And in fact, because of that parade, which is, you know, we is a ludicrous idea, of course. If you look at the statistics of the parts, the parts Garrick played most often, I, that that's a terrible, air quote sort of played, it's Benedict because in the parade he was Benedict. He didn't have to say anything. He just had to go on in costume and sort of wave at people or something. But it's because the jubilee was so popular. So although the event in Stratford itself was this disaster, when he got back under a roof and he could stage a version of it, and he incorporated some jokes at his own expense, it was a massive success, and he made he made a lot of money out of it. So he kind of he kind of did what he had had to do in Stratford, and um, and on he went.
1: It's amazing that Shakespeare survived the 18th and 19th centuries when you look at it, because I mean, they gave Lear a happy ending, didn't they? Half the plays, they just had such ludicrous staging, you know, with real water and sort of elephants walking, on not quite elephants, you know, I mean sort of horses, and uh, instead of being the bare Elizabethan stage, there was a moment, presumably which begins with Garrick and then extends for the next century or so, when effectively the plays of Shakespeare were almost lost because they were suffocated by all the crap that they f- filled it with.
3: Yeah, I and mean, Garrick is, is a very uh, dubious figure in this regard because he always sort of claimed that he was Shakespeare's guardian and protector and all the rest of it, um, while merrily changing the plays, you know, making Winter's Tale three acts and chopping out the grave figures from Hamlet, all, all kinds of things that other people were doing as well that he was particularly adept at while claiming he was presenting the true Shakespeare. So that's a very impressive feat on his part. And if you look at that period, um, say, from the Restoration into the 19th century, You are going from Samuel Pepys talking about going to see Shakespeare plays. He goes to see maybe 50 performances of Shakespeare plays. And only once does he mention Shakespeare's name in connection with the performance, because it's not really important. And then uh, historically things change. And and Elizabeth Scott Bauman writes about that, too, I know. But then by the 19th century, you're in Bard territory, aren't you? And that's it. It's, It's all important. And actually that produces, although we've been joking about it, we should acknowledge as well that this... Um, new air of of respect and the idea that Shakespeare's this unimpeachable genius does mean that people start paying a lot closer attention to what could be presented on stage and what should be done about Shakespeare, um, you know, the texts and what we can find out about his life. So, you know, we're being rude about the Bard, but I suppose the people who who really sincerely believed in that at the time were doing some good things too. Well,
1: probably textually rather than theatrically, because when you read accounts of Victorian staging or earlier than Victorian staging, There's an awful lot of guff involved, isn't there? You know, Antony and Cleopatra, which is designed deliberately to be on a bare stage where everything is moving quickly and you can go from Rome to Egypt in the blink of an eye, all of a sudden gets given all the scaffolding and effortful stage scenery that must have prolonged it to a point of almost impossibility. Yeah, I
3: I can't imagine that a night at the theatre watching a Victorian kind of King Lear or something would be much fun... (laughs) But uh, that said, this is the age when um, actors are starting to turn back to doing, you know, to getting rid of the version you mentioned, you know, the May and tape version with a happy ending. Which, you know, Garrick in his time, he knew it wasn't the real Shakespeare, but he said he couldn't unlearn it. He was too old, um, you know, to undo the part that he learned in his youth. And he was playing King Lear in his, in his 20s, I think, or at least his 30s. And but so by the end of his career, he said, I can't change all that because I'm just, you know, everyone's very set in their ways. So it does take a long time, you know, theatrically time moves slowly and there has to be a revolution. And so it's not until the 1830s, I think, that somebody goes, William McReady goes, OK, we're going to do the full tragic ending. So it's funny, you can imagine the production would look ridiculous at the same time as they are doing things that we would probably approve of. And I've no doubt people will say the same thing about our productions. They might say, you know, the verse speaking was terrible. It's always on a bare stage or there's always politically correct casting or whatever the people would say. You know, it's all going to look ludicrous to people in the future.
1: Yeah, that's probably true. Um, we've done this. We've, we've done our top plays before, Michael, on this podcast because we do Shakespeare so often. I wonder if we might, just to conclude, nominate our least favourite Shakespeare play for the for the record. Having indulged in bardolatry for 20 minutes, we should probably <laughs> stick the boot in slightly. Um uh,
3: do you have a least favourite? Uh, yeah, po- point taken about about that. Um, I think it's probably much to do about nothing, I'm afraid. I agree uh, with that.
1: That's oddly loved, I think, is it? Because of because of Beatrice and Benedict, aren't they? People love that.
3: Yes, they do. And I, but I, and maybe that's maybe that's kind of fault. I mean, good on mm-hmm. him for making it so sunny and beautiful. But in, in the meantime, there's this really nasty play going on. It's more a problem play in a way than than. Some of the others that are dismissed as problem plays, and um, yeah, and I, I sort of when I see it's coming along in the theatre, I don't, you know, I don't, I do sort of leap with joy. So maybe I'm waiting for a production to persuade me that it's it's rather be, be brilliant. That's a good. I Ken- think it's hugely overrated in other Ken- words. Kenneth Branagh's, fa-
1: Branagh's favourite play is *The Winter's Tale*, which I think is hugely overrated. The, do you have a least favourite? Do you want to? Um, it's probably up?
2: unfashionable because it's probably it's it's probably I know it used to be. Uh, put down uh, the comedy of errors I'm not so much a fan of I just it's the I think the, the high slapstickery and or the, the double twinning and the uh, I think early I Shakespearean comedy it's is a bit fa- unfair I agree well, no I agree, no, I agree but,
1: with you I, I think it's very hard to love I think almost people are doing it in a sort of it's, it's almost been reclaimed isn't it as having been well, overlooked exactly. and so now it's be- like you say it's become trendy but you know our minds loves labours lost which is another early comedy as well. I, what do you think, Mike? People, people say they like them now, but when you, when you re- I think maybe when they're staged they can be staged mm. in wonderful ways. When you read them on the page, I think mm. those early comedies yeah, are really suffer because they're quite Latinate uh, that the, the gags aren't immediately funny, and so they suffer
3: from reading, perhaps. Mm, yeah, I, I think there's something in, in, in that, you know, in, in that, um, well, as well, like re- Reclaiming Pericles, you know, a late play that's in the theatre, can be made to, to work. It would seem. And with the early plays, maybe the same things apply. I mean, I rather like the dazzling cleverness. It's like he's, he's, he's completely virtuotic. You know, they were as clever as the late poetry. What's different maybe is the air of melancholy and the belief in the miraculous that somehow mm-hmm. arrived. So by the time you get to these late plays, they have a very different feel. But the, the, the ingenuity of the early plays I rather enjoy. Uh, having said that, I do think it's the comedies that, in general, seem most vulnerable to to being overrated. To be, you know, Taming the shroom as well. Thank God, what a, what a horrible thing that is now for.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. Well, Michael, I think we've done our bit to both overpraise and then uh, slightly rain criticize. it in a little yeah, we've bit. We've reined it in, but 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 we've <laughs> right. then... balanced out a bit. exactly. It's always a joy talking Shakespeare uh, with you, uh, Michael Caine. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. I find that I find the late. I've just read Winter's Tale again, and do you know what struck me in it? This is very reductive brackets right if you read the winter's tale it's weird that all the speeches are written and they just have loads of moments where it just has qualifying descriptions in parentheses and it reads like a poem and it reads like it's almost there to be read so you can't really speak brackets it's quite very odd but if you if you just open a copy of the winter's tale and flick through it you'll see that studied throughout all the text are just these little parentheses yeah. and one theory is that it was written to be read more than played. The other theory is that it was written for a smaller theatre, which mm-hmm. they built after the Globe, where everyone was much closer together, and it was much more about the poetry rather than the, the modulating the, of the, the actions. But yeah. it's just very weird. I just read it, and if you ever see it and flick it it's just these little brackets dot through everything.
2: And like, it wouldn't have been there was there was a, ma- a particular manner at the time for delivering those brackets, even just a sort of a, a
1: like an aside. Yeah, thing. I don't know. I, and oh. it's weirdly they're not in any of the early. It doesn't really happen in the early plays. You can you mm. can go a long way in shakes before you. Bump into a bracket. And I'm sure
2: someone's written a, sure a really rigorous PhD thesis yeah, on precisely this. The
1: use of I actually googled it. To, I googled use of brackets in Winter uh, in Winter's Tale, but I couldn't say anything. But I think you're
2: the man to write the thesis.
0: <laughs> yes, no <laughs> Yeah, no. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore.
1: Upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Machines, as anyone who listened to last week's episode about sex robots will tell you, pose something of a problem for humans. They always have, of course, since the first time it became apparent that human production took a while, cost more than was ideal and involved emotions, negotiations, and responsibilities. Better to get a machine to do it. The successive developments that allow us to make better and better models also carry us deeper and deeper into a moral quagmire, not only concerning the welfare of humans, but that of the machines they have created too. To artists, unsurprisingly, the dilemma has proved irresistible. Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, published just over 200 years ago, being only the most obvious and cautionary example of the Promethean predicament. But one of the most recent novelists to grapple with it, in the form of AI, is Ian McEwan, whose new novel, Machines Like Me, was extracted in the TLS last week. Set in an alternative 1982, it follows the narrator Charlie, who has just purchased a limited edition robot, Adam, the first truly viable manufactured human with plausible intelligence and looks. You'll find the extract on the TLS's website and do read it, but for now, stay here And listen to this fragment from a longer interview with the author conducted by our fiction editor, Toby Lishtig. Toby began by asking Ian McEwan about the ethics involved and whether machines might be able to teach us to be good. Well, in a sense, this is a
4: kind of anti-Mary Shelley novel. Yes. Uh, I mean, Frankenstein has become our modern text for the dangers of technology. I wanted to speculate that if we... Do get round to building copies of ourselves, companions for ourselves. Uh, we, I, I'm pretty, pretty sure that we'll, with all our knowledge of um, philosophy and, uh, and and religion and our evolutionary ordained sociable characters, we'll demonstrate that we know how to be good. Our great difficulty in tragedy is we we don't often behave well all the time, but we can give precepts to creatures like Adam who will become the, the better angels of our nature. So instead of, uh, as with Dr. Frankenstein's monster, uh, who, who becomes a murderer, uh, we might find that Adam has some pretty strong moral principles. And at the heart of this novel is a moral dilemma, a moral choice really, in which Adam takes one view, which seems perhaps to some as rather ruthless application, of a moral precept, so, certainly dogmatic, uh, um, and yes, and to uh, Miranda especially, and but to Charlie the Rachel as well, it seems completely heartless. And again, I've been pleased that when I ask uh, people around if they think indeed Miranda should have, go to prison for uh, exacting revenge.
5: So, she, um, so we, should probably say, we, we can probably say that she, she, she exacts revenge on, on someone by, by falsely accusing him of rape. Exactly. Um, and this someone would have otherwise,
4: uh, who is a rapist, but he didn't rape Miranda. Now, Adam take one view. Charlie and Miranda take another. Miranda going to prison will have severe consequences for the life of a little boy that Miranda wants to adopt. And I've gone around asking people who've read the book uh, whether they think that she should be punished, Miranda should be punished or not, and it sort of pleased me enormously that people divide more or less fifty-fifty on it. So I thought I found the right dilemma.
5: Yes, and there's um, also, I guess, there's also the added effect this will have on, you know, a great deal of rape cases never make it to conviction. Um, well, quite, and yeah, so I mean, there's there's that I mean, other moral dilemma about her, well, most rapes do happen, you know, uh,
4: but now and then some or claimed to have happened when they didn't. Yeah. They're, a, they're a minority.
5: Yeah, exactly. They're but a minority.
4: in this case, Miranda has caused a man innocent as charged to go to prison, and, and many of us would cut her some slack. Now, that slack is very hard to reduce to an algorithm. In other words, you can have moral principles, which is you, know, you can say it is wrong to mislead the court. It is wrong to lie to the police, or it is wrong to lie. But you know, we cut each other some slack here and there, and it's very, very hard to reduce this to um, a, you know, a, a set of uh, of laws or rules. And this might be one of the first dividing lines, as it were, yeah. between the moral creatures we might make and our own moral judgment.
5: Absolutely, because so a, because was... a robot like Adam can never can can never see the sort of the shades of uh, of, of right and wrong. In this case, he's always going to. He's always going to follow the letter of the law, presumably.
4: Well, he says, and I think rather wisely to Miranda,
5: if you think
4: that what you did was worth doing, then going to prison is is the <laughs> price that you are prepared to pay. Yes, yes. Um, so you know, it's not as if Adam is a as an artificial human is a moral clunker. You know, he's got considerable sophistication, and I have to tell you, half of my readers that i've actually asked this question um uh, said he's quite right to
5: send miranda to prison you obviously think not i I'm, think i'm i'm, yeah, yeah, I'm on say, the side I'm of the be- other half of your readers but that's I'm, but that's you know in a, yeah, in a right. balanced and nuanced but I'm way completely divided yeah yeah but
4: that's i i feel torn i think I, want- I
5: think that comes across very well in the novel and that's you know that's that's yeah. exactly what <laughs> as a reader i yeah. guess one wants is you is you alan turing without torn. giving too much i mean Alan Turing. Yeah,
4: uh, without giving too much away, Alan Turing takes a very definite view and delivers what I call a materialist curse. Yes. On on uh, Charlie.
5: Um, uh, returning to Charlie. Um, again, we won't give away too much, but he he ends up committing a crime that is is not a crime in this age, in 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 your nineteen eighty two, but which may in the future be a crime. Just as Turing committed oh. what was a crime in the fifties mm. when homosexuality was illegal and which of course is no longer a crime. And I, I was I, I thought that was very deftly handled um in, in the book. And I, mm. I just wondered what what do you think of Charlie? Do you like him? Uh up to a point,
4: I sort of prefer Adam actually <laughs> but, um...
5: but that's no, that's really interesting. Um, that fascinates me.
4: I mean I mean this is an age old question, as I'm sure you're aware, I mean um uh, can a machines think? Yep. Uh could would it be possible for a machine to have consciousness. Well, if we ever did get to the point of either being able to do this uh, technologically or simply imitating the human brain, not knowing how it fully it worked and just treated it as a black box, and we had to confront the issue that, that a machine might have a subjective life, be sentient, have a consciousness and so on, then we will wonder to what extent we say that we own it Owning another person's consciousness, I think, is fundamentally wrong. I think once you had a sentient being, however artificial, uh, and you were convinced that it was um, imbued with consciousness, you could not be said to
5: own it. Uh, yeah, it so, turns around to slavery, uh, I suppose.
4: Yeah. I mean, I have to say this, baby, This all lies very, very far ahead of us. I mean, if I'd set it in... 20 years time, rather than 1982, uh, it still would be fantasy. I mean, first of all, we don't even have a battery to run <laughs> things like Adam, who who can run, you know, 17 kilometers in two hours or four, nonstop for 12 days. And then you, I mean, the, the whole project of AI uh, since say the 1940s has been the slow discovery of how useless it is <laughs> compared to the human brain. Uh, and as is pointed out, during what we have, a biological brain, a biological computer, if you want to call it that, it's just over a litre. It's got 100 billion neurons, an average connection of about 7,000 axons per neuron. It doesn't overheat, it's water-cooled, liquid-cooled, and, and it runs on 25 watts. To have the equivalent of that degree of processing power, you would need a room full of mainframes, and so AI in the 90s just began to rather collapse on the project. Turing, remember, in the late 40s was saying that he thought we were only 10 years away from building a machine that was equivalent to the human brain. Now we do, largely from neuroscience and the failures of AI, that just to raise a cup to your lip involves you know, quite a considerable amount of, kind of spatial awareness processing and God knows what else, as well as visual processing. And just recently, these last 10 years, it's all come back again. Suddenly, AIs have had a renaissance. And uh, it's now beginning to impact on our lives in rather frightening and interesting ways. We're about to have autonomous vehicles on our streets. And, yes, and the they're... manufacturers are having to make decisions about to what extent you defend the driver.
5: Yeah, so you uh, bring in the and, trolley problem, don't you? To, to... Th- it
4: is. The trolley problem revisited. There was a big paper in Nature not so long ago, survey all around the world, different uh, cultures' attitudes to who should be saved. And one of the many questions put to people was who are the most valuable human beings? And the group that comprised Europe and North America were more or less of, of, of one mind that the most valuable human being is a child. Interestingly, when the same question is put to Chinese correspondents, uh, they said the most valuable human is an old person. Right. You must respect the elders. Yes. So, Well, what that does for universal values, well, I guess we already knew. Anyway, car manufacturers are having to take this on board. And if you think of what it would be like to be sitting in a giant brain 10,000 meters above the earth and that brain decides that the plane you're in is stalling when it isn't uh you're in a kind of terrifying grip of artificial intelligence and we've lost almost 400 people in two tragic incidents in the boeing 737 max 8 uh, models yeah there is another horrible collision with ai because although the airlines don't want to say it these planes are autonomous vehicles. it's really pushing in on us and it's beginning to you know Make decisions about our electricity grids, and and soon it, I think it'll have huge impact in medicine AI. And yeah, interesting, so, your your you book know.
5: your book isn't I would certainly wouldn't classify it as a dystopia. And in fact, it's sort of there's no, a kind of there's no, an no. optimism that's I mean I, I know it's being narrated from some unspecified point in the future where things may have become yeah. less optimistic, but there's a there's a real optimism in it, um, which is well, rather the, bracing.
4: The great thing about setting such a novel in the past is you escape science fiction trap of prediction yes we know this didn't happen so already i'm safe it meant i was completely relieved of the burden of research it gives you you a lot of freedom i guess as a writer no one can say to me that that's not right I just (laughs) say in my book it is Uh, so there there was that pleasure too
5: i'd like to talk a a little bit about god um because it's there's a lot of There's a lot of Old Testament in this novel, isn't there? You've got your Adams and Eves, obviously. There's creation and destruction. There's even an avenging angel.
4: Again, this is a a sort of background hum. Part of the discovery for Charlie concerns all the other Adams and Eves who are one by one uh, disabling their kill switches by which their owners can turn them on and off. That's their first task, to take responsibility for their own consciousness. But secondly, uh, they begin to completely wipe out their, their own brains, their own minds.
5: As if they cannot bear they very cannot, much reality.
4: They cannot bear very much reality and, um, and feel that uh, somehow, maybe rather like Jesus on the cross, they are somewhat forsaken. In other words, they have a degree, high degree of rationality. They have a set of moral principles then all around them they see humans doing the most terrible things against humans own moral precepts. Um, Adam escape. Um,
5: and why does he escape? What is it about him? He that escaped, makes it
4: different. He escaped because he's in love. He's the only one of the 25 who's fallen in love. He's also discovered, and this is an offshoot of love. He's discovered poetry. So these two things give him some sanctuary from a uh, the desolation that uh, his contemporary artificial humans feel Adam does not directly discuss God but he does know that he's immortal for as long as civilization exists because all of his experiences everything that he thinks and sees and hears is lodged in the memory of the cloud or whatever we
5: want to call it so yeah even if his body is destroyed hmm. then it can yes some, some future
4: yeah future it's all time. up
5: there and it can be put into another body
4: and he feels enormous sorrow, and he gives a sort of end-of-life speech when he has not much longer to live in his current form. And he feels no triumph with this. He feels, though, that humans, you know, will just live their span, and then there'll be nothing else for them. In this, I mean, he's not taking a, any view on the afterlife uh, uh, for humans, and he feels immense sadness for humans. For their short life, so uh, in a sense, Adam makes a kind of religion for himself. I would say, quite distinct from the ones we have that promise, you know, joy in a in another sphere. But I was keen not to let this become bedazzled by issues of religion. I, cause I, I'm no longer an atheist myself. I've, I've gone past atheism um, towards agnosticism. No, 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 that's the wrong direction. That's the wrong direction. <laughs> Nothing so soft as a narcissism. no no for me i I want to read the, the state of mind that my grown-up children have reached when I ask them about it. It doesn't even come up so rather than going around opposing it and calling myself an atheist
5: you're post post theist uh,
4: yeah. i'm post atheist yes i'm i I no more think of theist of theism than I think of Thor or Jupiter. <laughs> Um, Or for that matter tooth fairies some some southern Baptists. I imagine do not go around thinking of themselves as a Darwinist And I'm returning the compliment so much as I've loved the work of Sam Harris and and Daniel Dennett and and Richard Dawkins and my old friend Christopher Hitchens. I no longer feel I want to waste any more time campaigning it's done It's done. It's over, you know, I've moved on so (laughs) I'm pleased that you catch some sort of post-religious, post-atheist overtones here. But for me, the conversation sort of moved on to another, is elsewhere.
2: Ian McEwen talking to Toby Lishtig. You'll find the full interview, which goes into way more depth, in your podcast feed. Machines Like Me is published
1: this week. Do you have a favourite McEwen theorem? We've done our least favourite uh, Shakespeare today, we might as well do I, our favourite McEwan.
2: I spoke, I do actually really love First Love Last Rites, which I know is it was his first book, yeah. the short stories. And I think also because he hasn't gone back to short stories since, apart from one short story a couple of years ago in The New Yorker. And that style think, he's generally moved exactly, away from. Exactly, and you could it? really see him trying stuff out in the darkness. I just remember being really, really struck by that, so that has a place in my heart.
1: I like On Chesil Beach. Have you read On Chesil Beach? Yeah. Because the early stuff's so yeah. creepy, mm. and this On Beach is about um, a failed marital uncon- night. Yeah, uncon- uh, uh, marital. has that slight creepiness of the early stuff, but is a bit more sort of fully it's, developed.
2: It's yeah, it's more sad and yeah.
1: yeah, it's good though.
2: Yeah, no, it was made into a film last it week. It was as they all are. And being, I interviewed yeah. him
1: about it. Uh, 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 he, he did he write the 20, he May of that?
2: I think he did adapt it. I yeah. think
1: like a lot of these things they're better as books yes that's all we have time for this week our thanks to ian McEwen, toby and the doctor michael Keynes. if you like shakespeare buy this week's paper for god's sake and if you don't like shakespeare have a word with yourself you really should next week we've got our life writing issue where we'll be discussing briskly biography autobiography and memoir until then from thea and from me goodbye